Now, I have one request of you this morning before we go into the Word of God, is the last few weeks we have uh, had an ongoing, um, uh, ongoing uh, once, about once a sermon, our phones go off. So rather than trusting in yourself, I think everybody should take out your phone, flip it open if you have an old phone, and just make sure it's on silent. Just make sure it's on silent, make sure it's on quiet, put it on your, your silent focus, your sermon focus, uh, and so that we can be uh, undistracted in the word of God. All right, today we are going back into the book of John. We are in our series through the first four weeks that's focused on who Jesus was and what he came to do in this world and the impact that he had as our savior. We, we saw the first chapter where John reminded us who Jesus was we saw chapter two where he, he chose his first disciples. We saw him you know, last week as he went to a, a wedding, became the greatest party maker in the world as he turned water into wine. And this week, as we stay in chapter two, we're gonna see a different side of Jesus. He kind of goes from being like the greatest party maker to the greatest party pooper as he visits the temple. But as he does this, he's gonna show us something about the other side of him that we don't always pay enough attention to and the impact that it has uh, on our lives. Now, like I said, we're gonna be in John chapter two. We're gonna start in verse 13. So I encourage you, if you want to, follow along in your Bibles. We'll have the slides up here, but I always encourage you to follow along. There is the uh, book, right, the Bible in the seat back in front of you, down below. You just turn it about halfway. You go to the right till you hit John. It's probably like around eight, page 835, something like that. Uh, and I will get to reading right here. Verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned the tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered what it was written, that the zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the word of the Lord. So John says, sometime after the wedding, Jesus heads up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. I thought, let's start here. Let's touch on what the Passover is for those who don't know. The Passover was this annual festival that celebrated the retelling of Israel's departure from Egypt. You can read about this in Exodus. You probably remember it used to be on Easter, the four-hour thing with Charleston Heston, every let my people, you remember the whole thing? And, um, and, and you remember what, what was happening is the Israelites had become slaves in Egypt. And so God tapped Moses and he said, I want you to go and free my people. Pharaoh was like, nah, I don't think so. I'm going to keep my slaves. And so God sent plagues to help remind Pharaoh of who the only God really was. And then the last plague he sent 
because Pharaoh wasn't responding to the earlier ones. The last plague he sent was that the firstborn of every Egyptian family would die. Now, the Israelites lived there too. And Moses told them, look, the angel of death is coming and you and your children will be saved if you spread the blood of a lamb on your door. Kind of like you see here. And that's what happened. Now in his anguish, because of the death of his own son, Pharaoh released the Israelites who fled to Mount Sinai through the desert. So now over the centuries that this celebration had kind of grown into this pilgrimage festival where people would travel from all over to Jerusalem to participate in sacrifice, symbolic meals, and a reflective study of this time where God provided salvation from the Egyptians. All right, so that gives us a little context on Passover. But why were people selling animals? Why were there money changers? Well, one of the ways that they would celebrate Passover, the sacrifice, was by sacrificing an animal. And now we're not going to go in depth into this today, but animal sacrifices were commanded by God in the Old Testament so that the individual could experience forgiveness of their sins. Romans 6, 20 or 3, for the wages of sin is, anybody? Death. Death is the wages of sin. Eternal separation from God because of our disobedience for our ignoring his authority in our lives. But what the animal did served as a substitute. It died in the place of a sinner. So they sacrificed one of their own animals. And it was only temporary, so this is why they would sacrifice an animal over and over again. Now listen, this, and this kind of seems really weird to us, right? This idea of animal sacrifice. You know, it, it seems a little gory, especially to us Gen X kids who grew up watching way too many horror films because we were home alone when our kids were working, right? And it, but we have to remember that this was a different culture. And every culture has things that they do that's a little weird to other cultures. And we also have to remember that everything that God did in the Old Testament was to teach us something. For example, he created the Ten Commandments so that we could learn that we can't obey God's commands on our own. And then he created this idea of animal sacrifice to teach us that there must be justice, there must be punishment for sin. And ultimately that Jesus would come and be the Lamb of God that was slain for our sins. And it's amazing when you read the Old Testament, because not everybody loves reading the Old Testament. But when you understand that the things that were done there were meant to teach us something about who he is, it changes how you read it. And so this was this example of Christ who was coming. Like John, remember John the Baptist? We talked about this last week. He said, when he saw Jesus coming, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All right, so people would travel great distances. This is the day between, before planes, trains, and automobiles, right? And so they'd go by foot. Or they'd have a donkey with them. And so it'd be really impractical to bring an animal from home. So what they would do is they'd just buy an animal when they got there. And then the presence of money changers were there to, to, to meet a legal requirement to make sure that all donations were quality, right? Because fake money isn't something that just started recently. 
that they were the right kind of money coming into the treasury. So really, in this story, everybody's doing something that's kind of legit. I mean, some people say that he got mad because people were stealing or they were charging too much. And, and you know, it's human nature. I'm sure, I'm sure that was the case, but the text doesn't say that. So what was Jesus upset about? Well, he gives us our key here in verse 16. He says, do not make my father's house a house of trade. In other words, Jesus is saying, this is not the purpose of my father's house. This is not the purpose of the temple. You see, the Old Testament temple was a place where people came together for corporate worship, for corporate prayer, to make sacrifices to the Lord. They came, this was the destination they believed where they could come and meet with God. And we're going to talk about this more in a few weeks, but the value of the Old Testament temple to Jews is completely different than our value of the church building. We will never fully understand that meeting because in the New Testament, we, we don't come to the church to meet with God. We come to the church to be corporate together, to build each up, to encourage each other, to build each other up, to learn together, to grow together, to fellowship. We know that we can meet with God anywhere. So our building, our church buildings, they, they just don't rate in our thinking to the value that they did in the Old Testament. I mean, for them, it was a place to come and be in the presence of the Almighty. It was a very sacred, sacred place. But now, when Jesus approached, you'd have people coming to the temple, and there'd be, there'd be the, 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 the bawling of cattle. You'd, you'd be like stepping over sheep droppings, cow chips, you know, different sellers. Over here, over here, two-for-one cow special, Right? How are you supposed to worship in all of this? When I read this text, it seems that they had lost sight of something. They seem to have lost sight of the meaning of sacrifice. Once again, the Old Testament sacrificial system, it wasn't doing things for the sake of doing them. It wasn't, the purpose was not to, to earn you something with God, but to remind you of something to remind you of your sin before God, to remind you that the wages of your sin was death. To remind you that you just can't go to God the way that you are. There has to be judgment, punishment. There has to be justice. But it also reminded you that this separation from God was not hopeless, that there was a way to be right with God. So it was a joyful process there's a way for you to be provided for. There's a way for you to be spared from your sin. And reflecting on their sacrifice, it was foundational to them understanding who God is and what he did for them. And it changes the perspective on everything. And it's the same for us. If you have trouble forgiving somebody in your life, you're not thinking about what sacrifice means. Because if you, you think about and focus on what Christ has done for you, how he died for you, it will humble you down to the point that you won't have a problem with forgiveness anymore. If you're having trouble 
with strength in your life and, and, and you feel like you're not strong enough to go through anything, one of the reasons is because you're not focused on his sacrifice, that it's not about your strength, it's about his strength. If you feel like there's no hope that you can never be healed in your life and your hurts and your pains, it's because you're not focusing on his sacrifice because it's by his stripes that we find healing. If you struggle to have joy in your life, it's because you're not focusing on his sacrifice. Because you were saved when you could not have saved yourself. Like the same joy that if you were drowning in the middle of the ocean and someone threw you a life preserver, the feeling of relief and joy that would rush over you. The same comes when we think about his sacrifice. When you don't have peace in your life, it's because you're not focusing on his sacrifice, knowing that your restoration to God was based on what he did and not what you've done. Romans 5.1, it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If your problems in your life are bigger than your hope or your joy or peace, it's, it's because you're not focusing on his sacrifice. And the idea that there comes a day for all who have repented and turned to follow the Lord, that they'll spend eternity in the presence of their Savior. As it says in Revelation 21, that he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. If you feel like you're wandering your life without purpose, it's because you're not focused on his sacrifice. Because if you're focused on his sacrifice, then you look around and you know exactly what all the hurting and lost people in this world need, and it's Jesus. And this is an important lesson for all of us, especially if you've been in the church a long time. You can do all the right things and still lose sight of why you're doing the right things. I think how many of us, we go to church and we, we sing songs or we stand there while other people sing songs and we listen to a sermon and, and, and none of it grips our soul because we become so mechanical it's just boxes that we're checking off. Go to church, listen to a sermon, check, check, check. And this morning, it would do you well to think, man, why are you here? Are you checking a box this morning? Like, I should go to church because it's like the right thing to do? Or are you here because you want to reflect on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for you? It's such a dangerous thing to lose sight of that, that it happens without you even knowing it. And I was thinking this way, man, it should be our constant prayer that we do not lose sight of Christ's majesty and the meaning of his sacrifice for us. Because as we've seen around in this world, it is just as easy for churches today to become something that God never intended them to whether they start teaching the wrong things or they start making the wrong things priority. It's because they lose sight. And I pray the Lord shows all of us where our faith is just mechanical and we're just going through the motions, where the function 
is more important than the focus. Because, I mean, they had the function down. Like, look, come do the sacrifice. You know, buy your cow, buy your pigeon, buy whatever it is you're doing. Here's the money changer. Go in, check off your box, and roll out. They'd lost sight of it. They lost sight of the focus. I pray the Lord would show us that in those moments when we're losing that focus, we, we would feel the Holy Spirit just tapping us. Amen, church? I pray today you'll ask yourself that question. Is there any area of your life with your walk with God where you're just checking the boxes, going through the motions, or have you lost sight of the sacrifice? Now in verse 17, Jesus tells us something. John tells us something that the disciples seem to remember when this was all going on. His disciples remembered that it was written that the zeal for your house will consume me. This is actually a reference to Psalm 69, which was written by King David. By the way, which is the most frequently quoted Psalm in the New Testament. So next time you're doing Bible trivia, we'll hope you get that question because now you'll be prepared. And David, when he wrote the Psalm, he was talking about a time where he became alienated because he was standing up for the Lord. He was, he was persecuted by faithless people. And he goes on in the Psalm to say that the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. In other words, he was going to suffer at the hands of others because of his commitment to the Lord. And obviously we see that this foretells what would happen to Jesus because the reason the Pharisees wanted him dead is because of his zeal for the Lord and him calling him out on the carpet. You know, and as, as I was reflecting on this, I was thinking, man, this is actually something everyone should feel who claims to follow Christ. We should all at one time or another feel the pinch that comes from having zeal for our father in heaven. I mean, it's like the followers in Acts chapter five, his disciples. Remember they were jailed because they were preaching Christ. Because they, and they said, no, no, we're going to preach. They said, no, you need to stop. Like, no, we're not going to stop. Eventually, most of them were executed for their faith. In fact, they counted it joyful to have this happen. They were excited at this. Matthew 5 says, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Then back in, I think it's Acts 1 or 2, they, previous to this, they were punished for preaching the gospel. And they came back and told the other disciples, everybody got excited. And then they stopped and they prayed for more boldness. I'm different. I'd be like, Lord, if I could have zeal for you, but not get in trouble for it, give me favor with everybody, that'd be great. But they didn't care. And I believe that we should follow the example of Christ, where we should have zeal for the Lord to the point that we suffer for his name. I mean, that's not our goal. You get up in the morning, let me suffer for you, Jesus. But that our passion for the gospel, our passion for seeing things honor God should be the driving force in our lives in those moments where he calls us to step out in boldness. And that we will be willing to suffer for it. Now, it may not be death. I hope it's not death. It could be the loss of relationships. It could be the loss of job opportunities, people looking down at us. But that our zeal would override 
any fear. I'm the belief that this is not scripture, what I'm saying right now, but as a pastor, I believe anyone who has zeal for the Lord and is actively trying to bring his gospel to the world is going to feel this pinch. They're going to feel rejection. They're going to feel people looking at them differently. And they're going to be okay with it. And be like, you know what? God's rejecting me. If people are rejecting me because of God, I'll take that. I'd rather have that than the acceptance of men and I sit quietly. Now, this doesn't mean, we, I want to be clear on this, we have the right to be jerks. Because I, I, in my time, people have often used this story of, of when they said it's okay to be angry. It's righteous anger. In my experience, maybe yours is different, when Christians use this righteous anger excuse, it's just that, an excuse to be mean and unloving. I remember Christ was perfect. We are not. We have every situation we go into, even if we know the truth, we still come into that situation with our own sin. We come into that situation with our own baggage, with our own biases, our own perspectives, our own presumptions about God's timing. We, we don't know the heart of other people like Christ did. We, we don't know their intentions. We don't know their hurts. We assume, but we don't know. So we better be real, real, real careful when we use righteousness as an excuse for our anger. In my experience, a good 99% of the time, our anger, and the way we lash out in our anger, it's not righteousness. This is why James 1 tells us to be slow to the what, what church? Anger. Because it does not produce, anybody? The righteousness of God. And even explaining our faith, 1 Peter 3.15 tells us to do it with gentleness and respect. And this was a big thing with the abortion, the thing that was handed down. When I watch people online and some like on Facebook, you know, where everybody seems to show their true colors and some Christians, I was astonished at the way they would talk about this to other people. They were right, but they were wrong in the way they were talking. There was no grace. There was no love. I think sometimes we tend to forget that if people who don't have their faith in Christ, they're not the enemy. They're lost. They're sick with sin. The only enemy at the end of the day is Satan himself, who is whispering in the ears of anybody who will listen. And I think when we remember that, it softens our hearts for other people. And it gives us patience. doesn't mean we don't have boldness. But you can be bold. You can be strong. You can be unwavering. And you still can do it with gentleness and respect and love. Amen, church? Amen. Now, Jesus' deploy force would obviously cause havoc. And so the Jews, the temple authorities, they come running up and they say, they say like, look, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Basically, this is like saying, who do you think you are? Right? And Jesus says this in answer. He says, Destroy this temple in three days, and I will raise it up. And the Jews were like, you know, this, it's taken 46 years to build this thing, and you're going to raise it up in three days? And this is what they're referencing about 
20 years, uh, uh, 20, in 20 BC is the way to say it, Herod the Great did this massive rebuilding program at the temple, right? And this is actually a, a, a model scale of what it looked like. It was massive. It took 18,000 men to build this, and it wasn't finished until 64 AD. And some, some of the stones I read, they weighed as much as 70 tons. In fact, if, if any of you have been to Israel, you still can see these stones holding up the Temple Mount. Still there. And so they're like, looking at this, they're, they're, they're there. They're probably right there in that first little area, the, 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 the court of the Gentiles. And they're looking around and Jesus is like, you tear this down, three days back up. And they're like, this guy is Looney Tunes. But John says that Jesus was referring to himself. You know, you'll know this when you read the Gospels, that Jesus' office hinted at the truth, but he didn't always just come out and say it. And people have asked me before, like, well, why didn't he just come out and say it? And I think for a few reasons. I think, one, people weren't ready to hear it. Remember his disciples? They were all following him right now under the wrong pretenses. They thought this was the Messiah, the one who was going to be a mighty military and political leader that was going to crush Rome who oversaw Israel. They had no idea that he was the suffering savior that victory would bought through the cross. I think also Christ did this because he knew his father's timeline. We talked about this last week because for you to claim that you are God in that culture meant death. Boom, you're done. And it wasn't his time yet. Plus, I also wonder, this is fun to think about, that Jesus would have known that the devil, in all his wisdom, had no idea what he was up to. Because think about it. Would the devil have any interest in setting Jesus to the cross if he understood that it was going to bring salvation? No way. He would have never done it. Man, I, like, I remember that old Carmen song, for those of you, I'm dating myself here. Remember Sunday's Coming? You remember that one? Where, you know, Satan's partying Sunday morning until he gets a knock on the door and he's like, what? I'm partying, I'm celebrating. Uh, Satan got something to tell you. Right? You can only imagine the shock. So I think for these reasons and, and for others, he doesn't come out right and say it, but he leaves us these breadcrumbs, if you will. And it, it says at the end that when the disciples look back and they did the math, they added it up. They're like, oh, we get it now. We get it. This reference to the temple is about himself. Jesus is saying, look, and we'll talk about this again in a few weeks, I am going to become the meeting place between God and his people. And this is why he says in Matthew 12, 6, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And he meant himself. Not an act of pride, an act of fact, saying, look, soon is coming a time where you will meet with God because what I've come to do. Jesus is saying, this is the authority I got to flip all the tables. You know, and this is the same kind of authority he has in your life and in mine. And, and Tim Keller, I remember he wrote an article on this story once, and he had such a, a fantastic take on this that I thought was so true in our lives. There's this duality to Jesus that we don't always pay attention to. We, we have this, or maybe we don't want to pay attention to, we have the side of Jesus, this great comforter, that he comes in and, 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 he, and he blesses us. He, he fills all our cups with wine, so to speak, based on our story last week. He blesses us over and above in abundance. But there's also this other side of Jesus who comes into your life and he flips all your tables over. 
He throws everything around. And he says, no, this isn't right the way that you're living. He does it through his Holy Spirit. He comes into your life in the Holy Spirit. And he says, no, this part of your life needs to go. Or you need to give this up. He does it through your word. Where you're reading his word and you read, boom, boom, don't do this. And you're like, oh man, I'm doing this. He does it through other people that come into your lives or, or through people who are preaching, who will speak into your lives and say, look, this area of your life gotta go. You're not living in reverence for God anymore. And this tells us something so important about Christ. It's this, Jesus is not concerned with being this non-offensive savior that he just hopes everybody accepts him. He's just here to bring us comfort and happiness. Sometimes he is going to flip things up in your life. He is going to rip everything out of your life that does not bring him glory. He's going to call you out on the carpet. He doesn't care about your approval of him. He doesn't say, hey, is it okay if I invade this area of your life? He doesn't need a permission. He says, I have the right to flip your life around whether you like it or not. I have the authority whether you admit it or not. Because just like the temple did not belong to these people, these sellers of money, these money changers, our bodies did not belong to us. We did nothing to earn them. They belong to God. This is why in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, man, be careful what you do with your body because your body is a temple of God. And so when it comes to his glory and the honor of his father, he doesn't care about our comfort. He doesn't care about our opinion. He says, I am God. I have the right to flip up the tables in your life. Everything that's distracting you from God, everything that's taking your eyes off God, everything that is not bringing glory to God. No matter what the cost. I remember I was counseling a couple once and they were living together before marriage. They're actively sleeping together. And they're like, but this is saving us like so much money. And I'm like, I... And I said it much nicer. Actually, no, I wasn't. I probably should have said it nicer. I said, God doesn't care. God has endless money. He doesn't care about the money you're trying to save. He cares about your obedience. He cares about bringing him glory. And, and, and so and they got angry about this. And, and that's what we do. We get angry when the Bible tells us to do, not do something that we want to do. So we stop listening, we stop reading, we stop attending church. We, we, when we hear things we don't like, we, we sort of speak, we crucify him in our lives like they did back then because we don't want to submit to his authority. But as I have learned in my life, if we could only see that what he is doing is because he wants God to be glorified in our lives. I mean, that's all he wanted here was to see God glorified in his temple. He flips the tables because we lose sight of his sacrifice. He wants us to put our eyes back where it belongs. That's what he wanted back then. And I guess that was another thing I was praying for today that the Lord would show every one of us, including myself, there's tables in our lives that just need to be flipped over, cleared out, because there's a part of our life that no longer gives reverence to God. There's part of our life that's become mechanical, a part of our faith that's become more about us. And we would pray that, 
And that when he reveals that if there be an area, and there's probably an area in all of our lives because we're sinful, that we'd make the right choice. We wouldn't sacrifice. I mean, we wouldn't crucify him and walk away, but we would repent. We'd turn our eyes back on him. We'd ask him to help us focus on his sacrifice that we may live a reverent life that brings glory to our Father.